Section 8 of On the Nature of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. On the Nature of Things by Lucretius. Translated by John Selby Watson. Section 8, Book 3, Part 2. Wherefore, again and again, I say, you may feel assured that the nature or substance of the mind and soul is produced from exquisitely small seminal atoms, since, when it escapes from the body, it carries away no weight with it. Nor yet is this nature or substance to be regarded by us as simple and uncompounded. For a certain subtle aura, mixed with heat, leaves dying persons. The heat, moreover, carries air with it, nor is there any heat with which air is not also mixed, since, as its substance is rare, many atoms of air must necessarily be borne with it. The substance of the mind is now therefore found to be triple. Nor yet are all these constituent parts, aura, heat, and air, sufficient to produce mental sense or power, since the mind admits none of these to be able to generate sensible motions, such as revolve any thoughts in the mind. A certain fourth nature, or substance, must therefore necessarily be added to these. This is wholly without a name. It is a substance, however, than which nothing exists more active or more subtle, nor is anything more essentially composed of small and smooth elementary particles. And it is this substance which first distributes sensible motions through the members. For, being formed of small atoms, it is itself first excited, then the heat, and the secret power of the aura, receive motion from it. Next the air, and afterwards all parts, are quickened. The blood is agitated, and all the viscera partake in the sensation, and, whether it be pleasure or whether it be the contrary feeling, it is communicated to the bones and marrow last of all. Nor can pain easily penetrate, or any violent evil spread, so far as this, without all parts being perturbed, so that, in such a case, room is wanting for life, and the particles of the soul fly off through all the passages of the body. But on the surface of the body, as it were, a limit is generally put to sensible motions, and from this cause we have the power to retain life within us. And now, though I would fain give a full exposition in what manner these principles are mixed one with another, and how, being arranged, they possess vigour, the poverty of my native tongue restrains me against my will. But notwithstanding, as far as I shall be able to treat of these subjects summarily, I will touch upon them. For the primordial atoms, by the motion of the elements among themselves, so actively intermingle in the substance of the soul, that no one can be separated from the rest, nor can their power become divided by any interval, but, being many, they are, as it were, the power of a single body. As, in the herd of animals, whichsoever you would inspect, there is a certain odour, and heat, and taste, and still from all these is composed one mass and combination of body, so heat and air and the secret power of aura and that other active force, which communicates the beginning of motion from itself to the other three, whence a sensible movement first arises through the viscera, being mixed, 
produce one nature or substance. For this fourth principle lies entirely hid, and remains in secret, within. Nor is anything more deeply seated within our body, and it is itself, moreover, the soul of the whole soul. As the force of the mind and the power of the soul, mixed up with our limbs and entire body, remains latent, because it is composed of small and few atoms, so this nameless force, compounded of small particles, lies concealed, and is, besides, as it were, the very soul of the whole soul, and rules throughout the whole body. In like manner it must be the case that the aura and air and heat, mixed throughout the limbs, possess their vigour one with another, and that one may possibly subside at times, or become prominent, more than the rest, but so that they may still seem to be one principle compounded of them all, and that the heat and aura by themselves, or the power of air by itself, may not, being separated from the whole, destroy and dissipate the sense. There is also that heat in the mind which it assumes in anger when it burns, and ardour gleams vividly from the eyes. There is also much cold aura, the attendant of fear, with which it produces shivering throughout the various members, and agitates the limbs. There is also that state of the air when at rest, which happens in concurrence with a tranquil breast and serene countenance. But in those animals whose fierce hearts and angry feelings easily burn in wrath, there is more heat, in which class especially is the violent fury of lions, which, raging, often burst, as it were, their hearts with roaring, nor can contain within their breasts their torrents of ire. But the cold temperament of deer has more of the aura in it, and sooner excites a chill influence through the viscera, which cause a tremulous motion to arise in the limbs. But the nature of the ox subsists more on calm air, nor does the smoky torch of wrath applied to him ever irritate him to fury like that of the lion, suffusing him with a shade of thick darkness. Nor is he torpid, transfixed with the cold darts of aura, but is situate between the two natures, those of deer and fiercer lions. Thus is the race of men. Each has a certain temperament, and, though instruction may in a manner render some individuals polished, it still leaves the first traces of the nature of every mind, nor is it to be thought that vices can be so plucked out by the root, but that one man will run more readily than another into violent anger. A second will be affected somewhat sooner than another by fear, while a third will regard certain things more indulgently than is right. And in many other respects, the various natures and yielding manners of men must necessarily differ, of which differences I cannot now explain the secret causes, nor find so many names for figures as there are diversities of shape in the atoms from which this variety in things arises. But, with reference to these subjects, I think myself competent to affirm this, that so small are the traces left of the natural principles which reason cannot remove by her dictates, that nothing hinders men from leading a life worthy of the gods. This mental nature, therefore, or compound intellectual substance, is contained in every body, and is itself the guardian of the body, and the cause of its safety, for the two, the body and soul, cohere, as it were, by common roots with one another, nor seem capable of being torn asunder without destruction to both. 
for, as it is impossible to separate the perfume from balls of frankincense, without the nature of it at the same time being destroyed, so it is impossible to extract the nature or substance of the mind and soul from the whole body, without all parts being dissolved. With such closely interwoven elements, from their first origin, are they endowed with common life. Nor does the power of the body or mind seem capable of having perception apart, each for itself, without the vigour of the other. But the sentient power lighted up through our viscera is conjointly produced by their common motions one with the other. Besides, the body is never produced, nor ever grows by itself, nor is it observed to retain its existence after death, or the departure of the soul from it. For it is not as when the liquid substance of water frequently throws off heat, which has been communicated to it, nor is on that account dispersed itself. Not so, I say, can the limbs, when deserted by the soul, bear the separation of the soul from them, but, thus divided from it, altogether perish and rot. For the mutual interconnections of the soul and the corporeal frame, from the very beginning of life, even in the body and secret womb of the mother, so acquire the vital movements together, that a separation cannot take place without destruction and damage to each. So that you may see that, since their means of preservation are united, the nature and substance of them must also be united. For what remains to be considered, if any one denies that the body has sense, and believes that the soul, mixed with the entire body, takes wholly upon itself that motion which we call sense, he contends against manifest and certain facts. For who will ever explain what it is for the body to have sense, if it be not that which experience itself has manifestly shown and taught us? But the soul being set free from the body, the body is void of sense in all parts, for it loses that which was not peculiar to itself in any period of its life, and it besides loses many things, as the soul is being expelled by age. To affirm, moreover, that the eyes themselves can see no object, but that the mind merely looks through them as through open doors, is difficult. When the sense of these eyes leads to a contrary opinion, for the sense of the eyes draws the mind and attracts it from within, to the sights or pupils themselves. While, let it especially be considered, we are often unable to look at bright objects because our eyes are prevented by their effulgence, which is not the case with regard to mere doors, for mere open doors, where we look through, do not feel any inconvenience. Besides, if our eyes are only instead of doors, the mind, when the eyes are taken out, and the doorposts themselves, so to speak, removed, seems bound to see even more clearly than before. On these points you can by no means assume as true that which the divine opinion of the philosopher Democritus lays down, namely, that the several atoms of the body and mind, applied and corresponding each to each, vary and connect the members. For not only are the atoms of the soul much more diminutive than those of which our body and viscera consist, but are also inferior in number and are distributed thinly, with spaces between them, throughout the limbs, so that you may safely warrant that the primary particles of the soul occupy and are distributed at those intervals only, at which corporeal atoms cast upon us, and striking against us, may, if of sufficient gravity, be able to excite sensible motions through the body, the concussions being communicated from the surface to the internal parts. 
for neither at times do we perceive the adhesion of dust on the body, nor feel powdered chalk shaken over the limbs settle on them, nor do we feel a mist at night, nor the subtle threads of the spider's web meeting us when we are entangled in them as we go along, nor do we notice the old vesture of the same spider fall upon our head, nor feathers or birds, or the flying down of thistles, which, from extreme lightness, generally fall with difficulty, and strike but gently the object on which they fall. Nor do we observe the progress of every creeping animal, nor every first step of the feet, which gnats and other such insects place upon our body. So many particles in us must be moved before the primordial atoms of the soul, mixed throughout the limbs in our bodies, can feel the sensation, and, impelling one another, at how great intervals, can, in succession, strike together, meet, and rebound. And the mind is more efficient in holding the bars of life, and more prevalent to preserve vitality, than the power of the soul. For without the understanding and mind, no part of the soul can have its residence in the body, even for a small portion of time. But when the mind takes its departure, the soul readily follows as its companion, and leaves the chilled limbs in the cold of death. But he to whom understanding and mind have remained continues in life, although he be mutilated, with his limbs even cut off on all sides. The trunk, though portions of the soul be taken away around it, and it be separated from the limbs, still lives and inhales the vital air. Deprived, if not altogether, yet in a great measure, of the soul, it still delays and continues in life. So when the eye is lacerated round about, if the pupil has remained uninjured, the vivid faculty of seeing survives. But this is only provided you do not injure the entire ball of the eye, but merely cut round the pupil and leave that alone whole. For such injury cannot be committed without destruction of the eyes. But if the very smallest part of the middle of the ball is perforated, though the bright orb be otherwise unharmed, the sight is at once lost and darkness follows. With such a connection the soul and the mind are constantly united. And now attend, that thou mayst understand that living creatures have minds and subtle souls, born and perishable, I will proceed to arrange verses worthy of thy life and virtues, verses collected during a long time and prepared with sweet labour. And thou, my friend, take care to include both of them under one name, whichsoever of the two I may use. And, for example, when I proceed to speak of the soul, teaching that it is mortal, suppose that I also speak of the mind, inasmuch as they are one by mutual combination, and their substance is united. In the first place, since I have shown that the soul, being subtle, consists of minute particles, and is composed of much smaller atoms than the clear fluid of water, or mist, or smoke, for it far surpasses those bodies in susceptibility of motion, and is more readily impelled when acted upon from a slight cause, inasmuch as both the mind and soul are moved by the mere images of smoke and mist, as when, lulled in sleep, we see high altars exhale with vapour and carry up smoke, since doubtless these phantasms are produced in us. Now, therefore, I say, since, when vessels are broken to pieces, you see water flow about, and any other liquid run away, and since, also, mist and smoke disperse into the air, 
you must conclude that the soul is likewise scattered abroad, and is dissipated much sooner than mist and smoke, and more easily resolved into its original elements, when it has once been withdrawn from the body of a man, and has taken its departure. For how can you believe that this soul can be held together by any combination of air, when the body itself, which is, as it were, its vessel, cannot contain it, if it be convulsed by any violence, or rendered thin and weak by blood being taken from the veins? How can that air which is more rare than our body confine it? Besides, we observe that the mind is produced together with the body, and grows up along with it, and waxes old at the same time with it. For as children wander and totter about with a weak and tender body, so the subtle sense of the mind follows and corresponds to the weakness of their frame. Then, when their age has grown up in robust vigour, their understanding is also greater, and their strength of mind more enlarged. Afterwards, when the body is shaken by the prevailing power of the time, and the strength being depressed, the limbs have sunk into infirmity, the understanding then halts, the tongue and the mind lose their sense, all parts fail and fade away at once. It is therefore natural that the whole substance of the soul should be dissolved as smoke into the sublime air of heaven, since we see that it is produced together with the body, and grows up together with it, and both, as I have shown, overcome by age, decay in concert. To this is added that as we observe the body itself to be subject to violent diseases and severe pain, so we see the mind to be susceptible of sharp cares and grief and fear, for which cause it is reasonable that it should also be a partaker of death. Moreover, the mind, in diseases of the body, often wanders distracted, for it loses its faculties and utters senseless words, and sometimes, by a heavy lethargy, is borne down into a deep and internal sleep, the eyes and the nodding head sinking, hence it neither hears the voice nor can distinguish the countenances of those who stand around recalling it to life, bedewing their faces and cheeks with tears. Wherefore you must necessarily admit that the mind is also dissolved, since the contagion of disease penetrates into it. For pain and disease are each the fabricator of death, a truth which we have been taught by the destruction of many millions in past times. Further, when the violent power of wine has penetrated the heart of men, and its heat, being distributed, has spread into the veins, a heaviness of the limbs follows, the legs of the tottering person are impeded, the tongue grows torpid, the mind is, as it were, drowned, the eyes swim, noise, hiccups, and quarrels arise, and other things of this kind, whatever are consequent on intoxication. Why do these effects happen, unless, because the vehement force of the wine has exerted its customary power to disturb the soul, as it is diffused through the body itself? But whatsoever things can be thus disturbed and obstructed in their operations, show that if a cause somewhat stronger shall spread within them, the consequence will be that they must perish, deprived of all future existence. Moreover, frequently, overcome by the force of disease, a person suddenly falls down before our eyes, as if struck by the blow of a thunderbolt, and foams at the mouth, groans and trembles in his joints, loses his senses, stretches his nerves to rigidity, is distorted, pants with irregular breathing, and wearies his limbs with tossing about. 
evidently because the violence of the malady dispersed throughout the body and acting upon the soul perturbs it as the waves on the foaming salt ocean boil with the strong fury of the winds groans are then forced out because the limbs are seized with pain and especially because the particles of the voice are drawn forth and carried collected in a body out of the mouth the way by which they have as it were been accustomed to pass and where the course of the road is paved for them loss of understanding takes place because the united power of the mind and soul is disturbed and as i have shown is divided and rent asunder distracted by that same distemper afterwards when the cause of the disease has given way and the violent humour of the disordered body has retired into its hiding-place then as if staggering the person first rises and by degrees returns to all his senses and repossesses the right state of his soul when these substances therefore the mind and the soul are shaken with such powerful diseases in the body itself and suffer distracted in such miserable ways why do you conceive that the same mind and soul can support an existence without a body in the open air and amidst strong winds and since we see that the mind may be healed like a sick body and wrought upon by means of medicine this also signifies that the mind exists only as a mortal substance for whoever attempts and commences to change the mind or to alter any other nature or substance whatsoever it is requisite either that he add new parts or transpose the parts in a new order or take away at least some small portion from the whole but any substance which is immortal neither allows its parts to be transposed nor to be increased by addition nor permits an atom to pass away from them for whatever being changed goes beyond its own limits this change is forthwith the death or termination of that which it was before the mind therefore whether it be diseased or whether it be wrought upon by medicine exhibits as i have demonstrated mortal symptoms so far is the force of true reason seen to oppose false reasoning and to cut off escape from him who shrinks from its conclusions and to overthrow what is wrong by a double refutation furthermore we often see a man decay by degrees and lose his vital power in one limb after another on the feet we observe the toes and nails first grow livid then the feet themselves and the legs mortify afterwards throughout the other limbs we perceive the traces of cold death thence proceed step by step and since the substance of the soul is thus divided and does not continue always and at the same time entire and unimpaired it must be deemed mortal but if perchance you think that the soul can itself contract itself internally throughout the limbs and condense its parts into one place and thus withdraw feeling from all the members successively yet in such a case that place in which so great a mass of soul is collected ought to seem in possession of greater feeling but since this place of such increased feeling is nowhere apparent the soul as we said before is evidently being separated into parts scattered abroad and therefore perishes moreover if we even consent to grant that which is false and to allow that the soul may be thus concentrated in the bodies of those who leave light and life by dying part after part 
you must still confess that the soul is mortal. For neither is it of any importance whether it perishes, being scattered throughout the air, or loses its sense when drawn together from being dispersed in its several parts, when animation steals away from the whole man more and more on all sides, and less and less of life is everywhere left. And as the mind is one single part of a man, and remains fixed in a certain place, as the ears and eyes are, and the other organs of sense, whatsoever govern life, and as the hand and the eye or nose, when detached from us, cannot, separately of themselves, have sensation, or even existence, for, when cut off, they are in a short time wasted with putrefaction, so the mind cannot of itself exist without the body, and the man himself, which body seems to be, as it were, its vessel, or whatsoever else you would imagine to be more closely united with it, since it adheres to the body by connection. Further, the animated powers of the body and mind are vigorous, and enjoy life only when joined with one another, for neither can the nature or substance of the mind, without the body, alone, and of itself, produce vital motions, nor again can the body, deprived of the soul, continue its state of existence and use its faculties. Just, for example, as the eye itself, torn from its roots, can discern no object apart from the whole body, so the mind or soul seems to have no power in itself, evidently because when mingled throughout the veins and viscera, throughout the nerves and bones, they are held in close confinement by the whole body, and their primary particles, not being free, cannot fly asunder to great distances. Consequently, being thus confined, they move with sensitive motions, with which, after death, when cast forth beyond the body into the air of heaven, they cannot move, for this very reason that they are not held confined in a similar manner. For surely the air forms body and soul. If the soul shall be able to keep itself together in the air, and to contain itself for exerting those motions, which it before exercised amidst the nerves, and in the body itself. On which account, I say again and again, you must necessarily admit that when the whole enclosure of the body is dissolved, and the vital breath cast forth, the sentient existence of the mind and the soul is dissolved, since there is common cause and like fate to both. Besides, when the body cannot bear the dissociation of the soul without putrefying with offensive odour, why do you doubt but that the essence of the soul, rising from the death and innermost parts of the body, has passed forth and has been diffused abroad like smoke, and that for this reason the body, decaying with so great a dissolution, has utterly fallen away, because the foundations have been removed from their place, and the spirits pass out through the limbs, and through all the windings of the passages and ducts that are in the body, so that you may understand from many considerations that the nature or substance of the soul, being disparted, has gone out through the members of the body, and that it was dissevered within the body itself, before, gliding outwards, it flowed forth into the air of heaven. Moreover, whilst the soul dwells within the bounds of life, it yet frequently, when it has received a shock from some cause, seems to pass away, and presents the appearance that the mind is let loose from the whole body, and the countenance then seems to become inanimate, as at the last hour, and all the relaxed members to fail the languid frame. Such is the case when it is said that the mind has been damaged, or the vital power has suffered syncope 
while all is trepidation, and all are anxious to recover the last link of life. For then all the mind and power of the soul are shaken, and these, it is evident, sink with the body itself, so that a cause of somewhat greater force may bring them to dissolution. Why then do you doubt but that at the hour of death the soul driven forth at length, weak and helpless, out of the body, and being in the open air, with its covering removed, can not only not endure throughout all time, but cannot even maintain his existence for the smallest space whatsoever. Nor does any one, when dying, appear to feel his soul go forth entire from his whole body, or come up first to his throat and to his jaws above it, but he finds that part of it which is placed in any certain portion of the body fail and decay in that part, as he is conscious of the other senses losing their power each in its own quarter. But if our soul were immortal, it would not so much complain that it suffers disillusion when dying, but would rather rejoice to pass forth abroad, and to leave its covering, as a snake delights to cast its skin, or an old stag its too long antlers. Again, why are the understanding and faculty of the mind never produced in the head, or the feet, or the hands, but remain fixed in all men alike, in their peculiar seats and definite quarters, if it be not that certain spots are assigned to each part to be born in, and where each, whatever it be, may preserve its existence when born, and if it be not, that such is the case with respect to the whole of the various members, so that there may nowhere arise an improper arrangement of the parts. So invariably in the operations of nature does one thing follow another, nor is fire one to be produced from rivers, or coal to be generated in fire. Besides, if the nature of the soul is immortal, and can have a sentient existence, when separated from our body, we must consider it, as I suppose, to be endowed with the five senses. Nor in any other way can we represent to ourselves the infernal souls as wandering on the banks of the Akron. Accordingly, painters and the past generations of writers have introduced in their compositions souls thus endowed with senses. But neither can the eyes, nor the nostrils, nor the hand itself preserve existence apart from the soul, nor can the tongue, nor can the ears perceive hearing, or even remain in being, apart from the soul. How then can souls be possessed of the five senses, when all the organs of those senses have perished? And since we see that the vital sense spreads through the whole body, and that the whole is animated, if, on a sudden, any violence shall cut through the body in the middle, so as to sever the two parts asunder, the substance of the soul, also, without doubt, being disunited and divided together with the body, will be dispersed and scattered abroad. But that which is divided and separates into any parts evidently shows that it has not an ever-during nature. People relate that chariots armed with scythes, warm with promiscuous slaughter, often cut off limbs with such suddenness that the part which, being severed, has fallen from the body, is seen to quiver on the ground, when, notwithstanding, the mind and spirit of the man, from the quickness of the wound, cannot feel any pain. And because, at the same time, the mind, in the ardour of battle, is given up to action, it pursues fighting and slaughter with the remainder of the body. 
nor is one man aware, frequently, in the midst of the horses, that the wheels and amputating scythes have carried away his left hand, which is lost together with its defence, nor is another conscious, while he climbs the wall and presses forward, that his right hand has dropped off. A third next attempts to rise after having lost his leg, while his dying foot close by him moves its toes on the ground. And the head of a fourth, severed from the warm and living trunk, keeps, while lying on the ground, its look of life and its eyes open, until it has yielded up all remains of the soul within it. Moreover, if, when the tongue of a serpent vibrates against you, and his tail and long body threaten you, you may feel inclined to cut both tail and body into several parts with your sword, you will see all the parts separately, cut through with the recent wound, writhe about, and sprinkle the earth with blood, and you will observe the forepart turning backward, seeking itself, that is, the hinder part of the body, with its mouth, so that, pierced with the burning anguish of the wound, it may seize it with its teeth. Shall we then say that there are entire souls in all those several parts? But from that position it will follow that one living creature has several souls in its single body. And since this is absurd, we must admit, therefore, that that has been divided which was one with the body. Wherefore both must be thought to be mortal, since both are equally divided into several portions. Besides, if the nature of the soul exists imperishable and is infused into men at their birth, why are we unable to remember the period of existence previously spent by us, nor retain any traces of past transactions? For if the power of the mind is so exceedingly changed that all remembrance of past things has departed from it, that change, as I think, is not far removed from death itself. For which reason you must of necessity acknowledge that whatever soul previously existed has perished, and that that which exists for the present has been produced for the present. Again, if after the body is completely formed, the vital power of the soul is wont to be introduced into us at the very time when we are born, and when we cross the threshold of life, it would not be in accordance with this that it should seem, as it now seems, to have grown up in the blood itself together with the body, and with its several members, but it would rather be natural that it should live alone, as in a cage, by itself and for itself, though in such a manner that the whole body, by its influence, should abound with sense and vitality. For which reason, I say again and again, we must neither think that souls are without beginning, nor that they are exempt from the law of death. For neither must we deem that souls, if infused into us from without, could have been so completely united with our bodies, which complete union, on the contrary, manifest experience proves to take place, for the soul is so combined with the body throughout the veins, viscera, nerves, and bones, that even the very teeth have a share of feeling, as their aching proves, and the acute pain from cold water, and the cringing of a hard pebble suddenly among our food. Nor, when they are so completely united, does it seem possible for them to come out entire, and to extricate themselves unharmed from all the nerves and bones and joints. But if still, perchance, you think that a soul, infused from without, is wont to expand itself through our limbs, yet to admit this is only to admit that every man's soul, being spread out with the body, 
will so much the more certainly perish with it. For that which is diffused throughout the body is dissolved with it, and therefore perishes. Being distributed, then, through all the passages of the body, as food, when it is distributed through all the members and limbs, is dissolved and takes of itself another nature, so the soul and the mind, although, under this supposition, they go whole into the body at first, yet are dissolved, like digested food, in diffusing themselves through it, while the particles are distributed, as if through tubes, into all the limbs. The particles, I say, of which is formed this substance of the mind, which now rules in our body, and which has been generated, like the new nature of food, from that which lost its consistence when it was spread throughout the limbs. For which reasons the nature or substance of the soul seems neither to have been without a natal day, nor to be exempt from death. Again, whether do any atoms of the soul remain in a dead body or not? For if any remain and exist in the body, it will not be possible for the soul to be justly accounted immortal, since when she took her departure she was diminished of some lost particles, but if, when removed, she fled with all her parts so entire that she left no atoms of her substance in the body, whence do dead carcasses, when the viscera become putrid, send forth worms? And whence does such an abundance of living creatures, void of bones and blood, swarm over the swollen limbs? But if, perchance, you think that perfectly formed souls may be insinuated into those worms from without, and if you suppose that they may pass each into its own body, and yet omit to consider for what cause many thousands of souls should congregate in the place from which one soul has withdrawn, this point, however, which you leave out of consideration, is of such a nature that it seems especially worthy to be sought into and brought under examination. It is proper not only to reflect, I say, whether souls hunt for particular atoms of worms and build for themselves carcasses in which they may dwell, or whether they infuse themselves into bodies already made, but also to consider that there is no reason to be given why they should make bodies, or why they should labour at all. For, while they are without a body, they fly about undisturbed by diseases and cold and hunger, since it is the body that rather labours under these maladies, as well as from death, and the soul suffers all evils from contact with it. But, nevertheless, let it be as advantageous as you please for these souls to make a body which they may enter, there seems, however, to be no means by which they may make it. It is fair, therefore, to conclude that souls do not make for themselves bodies and limbs." nor yet is there a possibility, as it appears, that they can be infused into bodies perfectly formed, for neither under that supposition can they be exactly fitted together, nor will their mutual motions be carried on with sympathy. Furthermore, why does violent rage attend upon the sullen breed of lions, and craft upon that of foxes? And why is flight communicated to stags from their sires, and why does hereditary fear add speed to their limbs? And as to other qualities of this sort, why do they all generate in the body and temperament from the earliest period of life, if it be not because a certain disposition of mind grows up together with each body from its own seed and stock? But if the soul were immortal, and were accustomed, as Pythagoreans think, to change bodies, surely animals would gradually alter, 
and grow of mixed dispositions. The dog of Hyrcanian breed would often flee from the assault of the horned stag. The hawk, flying through the air of heaven, would tremble at the approach of the dove. Men would lose their understanding, and the savage tribes of wild beasts become reasonable. For that which some assert, namely, that an immortal soul is altered by a change of body, is advanced upon false reasoning, as that which is altered loses its consistence, and therefore perishes, since the parts are transposed and depart from their original arrangement, wherefore the parts of the soul, under this hypothesis, must also be subject to dissolution throughout the limbs, so that finally they may all perish together with the body. But if they shall say that the souls of men always migrate into human bodies, I shall nevertheless ask why a soul, from being wise in a wise body, should possibly become foolish in the body of a fool? Why no child is found discreet or informed with a soul of mature understanding? And why no foal of a mare is as skilful in his paces as the horse of full vigour? Why, I say, is this, if it be not because a certain temper of mind grows up with each body from its own seed and stock? These philosophers, forsooth, will take refuge in the assertion that the mind becomes tender in a tender body, but if this be the case, you must admit that the soul is mortal, since, being so exceedingly changed in its new body, it loses its former vitality and powers. Or in what way will the vigour of a soul, strengthened in concert with each particular body, be able to reach with it the desired flower of mature age, unless it shall be joined to it in its first origin? Or with what motive does the soul go forth from limbs that are grown old? Does it fear to remain imprisoned in a decaying carcass, lest it should decay with it? Or is it afraid lest its tenement, shaken with a long course of life, should fall and overwhelm it? But to that which is immortal there are no such dangers. Moreover, to imagine that souls stand ready at the amorous intercourses or parturitions of beasts to enter into the young seems exceedingly ridiculous. It appears too absurd to suppose that immortal beings, in infinite numbers, should wait for mortal bodies and contend emulously among themselves which shall be first and foremost to enter, unless perchance you suppose that agreements have been made among the souls that the first which shall have come flying to the body shall have first ingress, and that they may thus have no contest in strength with one another. Again, neither can a tree exist in the sky, nor clouds in the deep sea, nor can fish live in the fields, nor blood be in wood, nor liquid in stones. It is fixed and arranged where everything may grow and subsist. Thus the nature or substance of the mind cannot spring up alone without the body, or exist apart from the nerves and the blood. Whereas, if this could happen, the power of the mind might at times rather arise in the head or the shoulders, or the bottom of the heels, and might rather accustom itself to grow in any place, than to remain in the same man and in the same receptacle. But since it seems fixed and appointed also in our own body, where the soul and the mind may subsist and grow up by themselves, it is so much the more to be denied that they can endure and be produced out of the entire body. For which reason, when the body has perished, you must necessarily admit 
that the soul, which is diffused throughout the body, has perished with it. Besides, to join the mortal to the immortal, and to suppose that they can sympathize together, and perform mutual operations, is to think absurdly. For what can be conceived more at variance with reason, or more inconsistent and irreconcilable in itself, than that that which is mortal, joined to that which is imperishable and eternal, should submit to endure violent storms and troubles in combination with it. Furthermore, whatsoever bodies remain eternal must either, as being of a solid consistence, repel blows and suffer nothing to penetrate them that can disunite their compact parts within, such as are the primary particles of matter, the nature of which we have shown above, or they must be able to endure throughout all time, because they are free from blows or unsusceptible of them, as is a vacuum which remains intangible and suffers nothing from a stroke. Or they must be indestructible for this reason that there is no sufficiency of space round about into which their constituent substances may, as it were, separate and be dissolved, as the entire universe is eternal, inasmuch as there is neither any space without it into which its parts may disperse, nor are there any bodies which may fall upon it and break it to pieces by a violent concussion. But, as I have shown, neither is the nature of the soul of a solid consistence, since with all compound bodies vacuum is mixed, nor is it like a vacuum itself, nor, again, are bodies wanting which, rising fortuitously from the infinite of things, may overturn this frame of the mind with a violent tempest, or bring upon it some other kind of disaster and danger. Nor, moreover, is vastness and profundity of space wanting, into which the substance of the soul may be dispersed, or may otherwise perish and be overwhelmed by any other kind of force. The gate of death, therefore, is not shut against the mind and soul. But if, perchance, the soul, in the opinion of any, is to be accounted immortal, the more on this account that it is kept fortified by things preservative of life, or because objects adverse to its safety do not all approach it, or because those that do approach, being by some means diverted, retreat before we can perceive what injury they inflict, the notion of those who think thus is evidently far removed from just reasoning. For besides that it sickens from diseases of the body, there often happens something to trouble it concerning future events, and keep it disquieted in fear, and harass it with cares, while remorse for faults from past acts wickedly and foolishly committed torments and distresses it. Join to these afflictions the insanity peculiar to the mind, and the oblivion of all things, and add besides that it is often sunk into the black waves of lethargy. End of section 8